Uh, it's great to have you here with us on this uh, Good Friday. Uh, my name's Matt. I'm the pastor here of Tri-City Church, and uh, it's just really great uh, to have you uh, with us. Um, we always like to mention just a couple things, uh, especially if there are any uh, visitors here with us. Uh, we would love to connect with you this morning. Um, we have a couple of ways to do that. We have some cards. Uh, one of them is called the Connect Card. If you have any questions about what's going on here at Tri-City Church or just like someone to contact you or answer any questions, uh, you can grab one of these, throw it in the lobby, fill it out, and uh, we, would, we would love to do that. Uh, we also have a prayer card, uh, obviously for any prayer requests, uh, we would love to partner with you in prayer. So please also find this card, you can fill it out. Uh, there's a box in the lobby, just mark cards, you can put it in there. And we also have a, uh, uh, a desk, the Connect Desk. And uh, the folks there would love to, uh, to talk with you, answer any questions you have. So I uh, always like to make sure we begin with that and, uh, and to welcome you here. Uh, obviously, this is, uh, this is Good Friday. And so uh, that, means, uh, that means for Christians, uh, it's a day of great significance. Uh, our, our opportunity is to remember the events of and the importance of the cross of Jesus. And so that's, that's what we're going to do. Uh, I've entitled the, the title for this message, The Unique uh, Cross of Jesus. And what I hope to, uh, to help us remember or perhaps realize for the first time is indeed the, the uniqueness of the cross of Christ. Uh, we've heard the, the accounts of the crucifixion uh, told with our readers uh, through the text, uh, mostly Luke uh, chapter 23. And in that, we, we hear the events uh, perhaps uh, in a familiar way. If you're a Christian here this morning, more than likely, you, this is not the first Good Friday gathering you've been to. Uh, more than likely, it's not the first time you've heard the accounts of the crucifixion. Uh, this was not something new even for the people involved in the events of the crucifixion. Uh, death by cross was not something new when it happened to Jesus. And yet, there's something unique about the cross of Jesus. See, this death, this cross was not like all the other deaths that had happened before. Uh, this death on a cross designed to inflict pain and suffering, in fact, achieved just the opposite. This cross amazingly brought uh, joy and hope, brought life when it was designed to bring uh, pain and suffering and to destroy hope. So we're going to look at this cross. We're going to examine the events of it in the text of scripture and see what it is that God has for us and what it is that Jesus did for us. Uh, we are going to do this in three ways, uh, three points this morning, now, all to do with the cross. The first is the pain of the cross, then we're going to look at the tears of the cross, and then finally land on the grace of the cross. So in terms of the first point, the pain of the cross, as I mentioned, uh, death by crucifixion was not something new. In the ancient world, it was very, very prevalent. Uh, the, the rulers of the ancient world used crucifixion as a tool. Very often it was used uh, to punish criminals, uh, but, but also it was used to bring retribution against enemies or even just to, to help everyone in the region know who was in charge. Uh, Alexander the Great uh, was said to have crucified 2,000 people after he uh, conquered the city of Tyre. So he conquered the city, uh, took it over, and everyone who survived there, then he crucified them. And the reason he did that was to show everyone in the region that Alexander the Great is in charge here. Greece is in charge here. And the crucifixion was a tool, a means to that end. Uh, the Romans also uh, did many crucifixions, many mass crucifixions. One in particular uh, was by a general, General Crassus. 
He was one of the ones who helped to put down the uh, slave rebellion led by Spartacus, if you remember the, the movie. Um, and after the rebellion was put down, he then proceeded to crucify 6,000 of the rebels so that everyone in the region would understand a very clear message that you don't rebel against Rome unless you want to die a very, very painful death. Because pain was the whole point. Right? Pain was, was the tool that was used there. Uh, death was quick. Death could be quick. But death by crucifixion was slow. It, it, was, it was torturous. It was painful. The message to everyone in the region was, you better think twice before you say anything or do anything that might contradict Rome, that might be some form of rebellion or some crime against the state because you will end up like these people in pain, suffering for hours into death. Now, on the subject of pain, uh, we should recognize that pain is not always or not only a negative thing. Uh, Pain in our bodies can actually be a very, very helpful thing. It's a warning system of sorts that God has designed in our bodies so that we realize something is wrong. When, when we get injured or when we, there's an infection, there's, there's pain, there's swelling, and that's a signal to us, hey, we, we better do something to fix that. That's one of the, uh, the difficult things, the tragic things about leprosy. One of the symptoms of leprosy is that you, you can no longer feel pain. Uh, I had the opportunity one time to, uh, to visit a clinic in Nepal. I was there doing some uh, missionary work with uh, some of the missionary families there. And uh, one, uh, the doctor there was someone I knew from... Uh, my home church, uh, Dr. Davy Jin, and he, came, he showed me their clinic, and there were a number of leprosy patients there. And he you know, showed me, and he said, look, leprosy, it's not really that contagious. Good hygiene takes care of most of it, but the real, the real difficulty, the challenge, is that because uh, there's lack of pain in the physical lifestyle of the Nepalese, where they were burning themselves or hurting themselves as they worked out in the fields, they would always injure themselves. They wouldn't know it. And so uh, infections would develop that there would be deformities because they didn't have the pain to tell them that something was wrong. Pain can be very, very helpful in that sense because the human body is, is actually very fragile. We forget this these days uh, because we have movies of superheroes that never seem to get hurt. And when they do, they have uh, you know, regenerative powers, right? Like Wolverine or Captain America. They, just, they get punched in the face, they fall off a building, they bounce, and they get up and they... They keep going. Everything's fine. We forget that the body's actually very, very fragile. Until, of course, uh, we get hurt. A few weeks ago, I, I jammed my thumb. It really hurt. Like, really, it was, it was sore, and I poked it with something, and, you know, I, I kind of left it, and the next day, it was, it was kind of red and swollen. I could feel the, the pain. So I put some polysporin on it, you know, wrapped it up. The next day, it was even worse. I thought, oh man, so I got the triple strength polysporin. I poured that on. Thankfully, I was prayer morning, Thursday morning, so we, we prayed over it, and uh, we asked God to heal, and he, he did. It was all right, or the polysporin did. I don't know, but the point is that pain is, uh, is, a, is a helpful thing. Pain is something that when we feel it, we want to get rid of it right away, but the, the whole message of pain is, hey, something is wrong with your body. You need to do something about it. Whatever else is going on in your life, you need to stop that and attend to your own body or else there's going to be an infection. You're going to end up in in the emergency on antibiotics. Pain can be a helpful thing. 
But part of the, the way it's helpful is to send this alarm, this signal through our body, and it's the very thing that makes the cross so torturous, so effective. See, for Rome, when they crucified someone, the message was very, very clear. You don't have the power to help yourself. Even though your body is in great pain, and even though everything is telling you, all the pain receptors are telling you, you have to make this stop, you can't make it stop. The message is very clear. Rome has the power. If you're up there, if you're experiencing that amount of pain, you don't have any power. Rome does. Which is one of the things that makes the cross of Jesus uh, so unique. Because, because Jesus makes very clear that, that in fact Rome doesn't have any power over him. In fact, he is in charge. We see this in the lead up to the cross. Here is uh, one passage from Matthew. This is when Jesus is being arrested. And, and Peter, to defend him, he whips out his sword and starts to attack the soldier. And here's what Jesus says. He says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will come at once? He will send more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, this isn't, isu- isn't an issue of power. This isn't an issue where, where I, I need you to defend me. I have all of the power of heaven at my disposal. It's not an issue of power. It's an issue of doing the will of the Father. It's an issue of, of me being willing, me desiring to fulfill the Father's plan, everything that has been foretold in Scripture. Don't, don't mistake the fact that I'm about to be arrested with the fact that, that I need help, that I don't have enough power. We see it also when he's in conversation with Pilate. The issue of authority comes up. Pilate says to Jesus, he's trying to get him to, to talk. He says, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. It's very clear. Jesus is the one who has all the power. And yet, he is the one who endures all the pain. He is the one who willingly puts himself in a position where he will endure the pain of the cross. Where even though his, his body, his human body is, is telling him that this must stop and he has the power to stop it, he doesn't. He, he goes through the agony of the scourging, the whipping his back. He goes through the, the crown of thorns being jammed on his head, the blows from the soldiers, which would have left him deaf from all the, the blows to the head. He allows the soldiers to put the the cross on his back, the splintery wood on top of his flayed back, and he he carries it all the way to the mound where then he allows the soldiers to to nail spikes through his his hands, through his arms. And all the while, his his body would have been saying, this this has to stop. it, It needs help. Do something. For every other victim of crucifixion, the answer was, I want to, but I can't. For Jesus, the answer was, I, I can, but I don't, I don't want to. There's something I want more. I want to fulfill the Father's plan. I want to bring help to all of humanity. See, this was something that the rulers of the day, they totally misunderstood. See, for them, they, they thought that they had conquered Jesus, the one who said he was the Christ. Look at how they, they talked to him up on the cross here in verse 35 of our uh, we're reading. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, 
If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. See, they thought, if we can beat him, if we can nail him to the cross and get him up there, then the verdict is in. Clearly, clearly he is not the son of God. Because the son of God would have power. The son of God would never allow himself to be up there. It doesn't make sense. Anyone with the power to come down from the cross would come down because of the pain. So they couldn't imagine that, that Jesus might have chosen to be up there. That it might, in fact, have been his plan to go through the pain. Not because of a lack of power, but because of a, a depth of love for the people. See, this is the other unique part about the cross of Jesus, different than any other crucifixion. And that is that the pain served the purposes of the one being crucified rather than the one yielding the hammer. See, the one who held the hammer and every other crucifixion, they were the ones in charge. It was their plan. They were the ones setting the direction. This was about punishment or intimidation or something to that effect. But for Jesus, it was something totally different. He was in charge. He had the power. He had the love for people to endure that type of pain. So what is the response to that? There is, in effect, the, what Jesus went through for us, but, but we're going to turn our attention now to the, to the impact that it has on those who were there witnessing it and, and those throughout the generations who've heard the story. And so for this, we turn to our second point, the, the tears of the cross. See, in thinking about uh, the cross of Jesus, we have to be careful especially on a day like today when we really have come to, to remember the events. And with that comes the, the recognition that there was an intense amount of pain, an intense amount of suffering. But the mistake we might make is in thinking that all of that should bring in us a, a sense of sympathy for Jesus, that we would feel bad for Jesus, that we would think, poor Jesus, he had to go to the cross for us. But in fact, that was never the intentions of Jesus. That's not what he wants for us. Jesus doesn't need our sympathy. He doesn't need our tears for him. He didn't need them then, and he doesn't need them now. He makes it very clear on the road to be crucified that there's reason for tears, but it's not because of what's being done to him. See, as he was carrying the, the cross through the streets, we see this uh, in verse 27, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So these women uh, were, were following him. They were weeping. You see this today still in the Middle East. They have professional mourners who would travel behind funeral processions and they're weeping. They're, they're sorrowful because of the death that has happened or in this case about to happen. They, they didn't really know Jesus. Uh, we know this because uh, in a moment he calls them daughters of Jerusalem. Most of his disciples were not from Jerusalem, but they were crying for him. They were crying because, because of the pain, because of the suffering because he was about to die. This was not something new for them. In fact, everyone involved, the soldiers, these women who were weeping, the crowd, this was a typical crucifixion. This was something that had happened many times before in the streets of Jerusalem because there had been many crucifixions before, but, but something new happened on the road to this crucifixion. See, when Jesus spoke, he said something that no one had ever heard before. He, with, with the cross on his back, he turns to the women, and here's what he says. He says, daughters of Jerusalem... Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Can you imagine the, the faltering wailing? The, the, what, what did he say? 
What does he mean? That seems like nonsense. We're to weep for ourselves? You're the one who's got a cross on your back. You're the one who's trailing blood all over the streets. You're the one who's, who's about to be crucified. If anyone should be mourned for it, it's you, not, not us. What, what does he mean by that? And to answer that, he, he gives a, a prophetic word. He explains through this, this picture he gives. In verse 29, he says, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never, wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills cover us. So here Jesus is giving a, a prophetic picture of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He did this uh, also last week on Palm Sunday. He does the same thing. He says there will be a day coming when this city is, is destroyed. And on that day, he describes the, the horror and the terror, but this prophetic picture is not just about the, the destruction of Jerusalem. It's about the coming destruction for all who are in sin. And Jesus emphasizes the terror and the horror of the moment. He says that those who have had no children, they are the ones who will be blessed. They will be thankful. Now just, just think for a moment, in a culture where family is prized above almost everything else, this is a statement of utter despair. That there is going to be a time when there are people who don't have kids and they are thankful for it. Why? Because of the, because of the suffering. Because of the destruction. And those who have kids will wish that they didn't. This is not just a picture of the destruction of Jerusalem. It goes beyond that. See, these people are so desperate, they are asking for death. They're asking for the mountains to fall on them. This is nothing less than a picture of hell. The Bible describes hell as a place of unquenchable fire, of eternal destruction. It's a place where crimes against an, an infinite and pure and holy God, our sins against this God are punished justly for eternity. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, you see what I'm going through, yes, but there's even greater terror to come for yourselves, for you, the people of Jerusalem, but beyond that, for all those who are in sin. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about this. It's not something in our day-to-day -day lives that we tend to, to really be mindful of. Even for those of us who are Christians and are, are reading through the Bible, it's, it's not something we tend to go to naturally, to think about the weight of sin, the, the gravity and consequences of sin. But the Bible brings it up fairly frequently. In fact, throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, God gives these pictures of coming judgment over sin. He wants it to be very, very clear to humanity that, that there's a problem, that like a like a pain receptor, like a, a wound in your body. There, there's something that needs to be dealt with. And so he gives these pictures. Uh, if you were with us through our series through Abraham, we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of those wicked cities. And it's very clear in scripture, even way in the New Testament, that that destruction of those wicked and evil people, that was um, a just punishment for their sin, but also a picture of what is to come for all who are in sin. We see it also uh, through the prophet Jeremiah. Here God is, um, is speaking uh, warning for the people of Jerusalem. Back then, Jerusalem got destroyed by the Babylonians. And here's what it says. It says uh, God says, Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar. O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. 
Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Your fortified cities in which you trust, they shall beat down with the sword. This is a warning to God's people who have abandoned his ways, who are trusting in other things. They're trusting in their strength, their military strength. And God is saying that that, that's not going to save you. You've turned your backs on me. And so there is coming a just punishment. And again, it's not just for the people there. It's, it's for people of all time. We know this because in the book of Revelation, we have a final picture of the day of judgment for all humanity. And this is what it says in Revelation 6. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You notice there the parallel between the words of Jesus and our text. The people there are, are so tormented, they're wanting the mountains to fall on them. They're wishing for death. But notice, what's the origin of their judgment? It says it's the wrath of the Lamb. That's Jesus. The wrath of God is poured out justly on all who are in sin. And so what Jesus is saying to the people of Jerusalem in that moment, he's saying the same thing that God has said throughout all of the Bible. And that is that if if there's reason for sorrow, and there is, it's not because of what is happening to Jesus in this moment. It's for us. It's for us. We have incited the anger of God. All humanity from beginning to end of our life, we, we go against what God says is best. We find other things to trust in, other things to hope in, all the while thinking that we have things figured out, and yet we are turning our backs on the source of life itself. And God says, for this to be a just universe, there needs to be punishment for sin. There needs to be an answer for evil, and I will, on the day of judgment, punish all fairly and justly, So Jesus is saying there should be weeping. There should be sorrow. There should be tears, but not for him, for us. Jesus has done nothing wrong. Jesus did everything to please the Father, everything perfect, from the day he was born as a human being to the end. He did everything with a clear head and a clear heart. He did everything to fulfill the will of the Father, which included going to the cross, which included going there with strength and with purpose, and with authority, and yet allowing himself to endure that pain. So the true sorrow is not for him. The true sorrow is for all those who hear of the hope of the cross and turn their backs on God and walk into the coming wrath of God. Those those who turn a blind eye to sin, who ignore that that warning pain in their soul and say, I'll be fine. I'll figure it out. I've got a good life going on, and I'm not really sure what's to come, but I'm not too worried about it. Jesus says, you should be weeping, that there is reason for weeping. In fact, Jesus uses a metaphor to to sort of encapsulate this, to explain what is coming, the difference between him and the difference between between us, humanity. Uh, In verse 31, he says, in a metaphor, he says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So there he's contrasting green wood with dry wood. And for those of us who camp, we know the difference. You don't build a fire by looking up 
in the trees that are alive and green and cutting off a branch. That, that wood is not good for the fire. That's green wood, that's wood that's alive. But the dry wood, that's the wood that burns well. That, that's the wood you're looking for to, to put on the fire. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the green wood. I'm the one who's full of life and perfection and purity. I'm not the one who should be thrown onto the fires of God's judgment, but I am. And if I'm being thrown onto the fires of God's judgment, what about you? Those who are dead in sin, those who are the dry wood. Will you not be consumed with even greater intensity when you are thrown onto the fires of God's judgment? See, this, this kind of talk is, <clears throat> is weighty. And, and oftentimes there's criticism for Christians as we talk about these kinds of things, when we talk about the, the weight of guilt, that, that we should be aware of it, we should be sober-minded, and, and we should feel the, the weight of our disobedience. People in criticism say, well, the, the church just wants to keep people down. Just wants to keep people in place. Wants us to constantly feel that weight of guilt so that we will live our lives the way they want. And sadly, I mean, that has been the case. We have to be honest that there have been many times throughout history where the church has not taught on this well. But see, that's, that's not where this leads. That's not where this story leads. That's not God's intention. He has never intended for human beings to sit under the weight of guilt. What he wants for us is to recognize our need for help, our need for a savior, our need for someone to come and un- unburden ourselves of this weight of sin. What he wants for us is to turn to repentance. When Jesus says to the women, you're weeping but for the wrong reason, it's not because he wants them to go home and simply be sorrowful for the rest of their lives. What he wants for them is to recognize there is actually something wrong. I'm not right with God. I've been turning my back on God the whole time. The things I've been hoping and trusting him are not gonna do it. I need to repent. A word which means to turn from sin and turn to the salvation of Christ. See, the beauty of the cross is that there is, there's pain and there's tears, but it's a road that leads to, to life and hope. And so it is good and right that we are sorrowful for ourselves. If you're in this room and you've never really realized the extent to which you are against God, the gap between you and God, if you have no hope beyond this life, then then it's good and right that you should feel the weight of that sin to to wonder what will happen on the day of judgment. But the the end is not to sit there. The tears are are ones that that come, and and maybe you've experienced that. As believers, if you're here and you're in Christ, no doubt there was a time in your your life where you felt the weight of that sin. You were literally crushed. You were on your knees and, and seeking the salvation that God gives, and that's a good moment. That's a moment that leads to life and hope and joy. The the pain and the sorrow leads to a place of God's grace. That's the beauty of the cross of Jesus. And that's what we turn to as our last point, that the grace of the cross. This is the most beautiful and wonderfully unique thing about this cross is that ultimately it is a cross of grace. I mean, this is the whole reason that Jesus carried the cross on his back and allowed himself to be crucified because he, he recognized the severity of the situation for all of humanity. He saw that there was a debt to be paid in, and we could never do it. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus, out of love for us, and out of a desire to glorify the Father, he, he enacted the plan of God, and came and lived the perfect life, and then died the death that we deserve. 
And, and we see it all over the, the Bible, especially the New Testament, but perhaps nowhere so, uh, so beautifully said and concisely as Romans 3. So this is the, the, the gospel. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See, this is the essence of the good news. You see it all there. We have fallen short, but God never has. We are in need of of justification, a word which means uh, to be made right with God. We need that. We don't have it. We need redemption, that to be made new. We don't have that. But it's given to us as a gift. We don't have to be good enough. We don't have to try hard enough. We don't have to do penance or any other thing to inflict pain upon ourselves. Christ took all of the pain and suffering on himself and then freely gives it to us as a gift. That's the beauty of the cross, the blessing of salvation. And notice, it all comes simply through faith, which means, which means repentance, which means, Lord, I, I see that I need this. And I believe, Jesus, that you did this for me. Lord, would you change me from the inside out? Would you make me new? New in Christ rather than how I was in my own sin. See, these these truths are are vibrant. They're life-changing. These are the truths that emanate from the cross and have changed lives throughout history. Millions, billions of people, we in this room have been changed by the gospel truths that we need a savior, that we can't do it on our own. My question is, has it changed you? Do you know the hope of Christ? Do you see in this cross something different? Something different than all the other crosses? I mean, we don't see it all the time, but we know in history it has happened. And yet this one, this one brings the grace of God, the hope of God. The amazing thing is that even in the moment, even as Jesus was hung upon that cross, it was having an impact on the people around him. I mean, certainly for generations since, as we look into the pages of scripture, we see the truths of God. But even for the people there at the time, we see that there is an impact. There's something different about this cross. So we're going to look at a couple of them before we close. Uh, The first is Simon of Cyrene. Uh, You heard in the reading, he was the man that I mean, Jesus was, was weak, and so the soldiers just grabbed someone out of the crowd and, and made him carry the cross. He was a Jewish man from northern Africa. And according to Luke, uh, we don't know much more about Simon. It could just be that he was grabbed out of the crowd, and I mean, what a surprising and really horrific event to, to walk with Jesus, to carry the cross, and maybe that was the end of the story, except Mark. Mark tells us a few details. Some telling details. Here's what Mark says about that scene. It says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now that, those details that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, that's, that's interesting. First of all, how would Mark know who his sons are if he was just a visitor from a far off land? How would he even know if he lived there in Jerusalem except that perhaps that Simon had sought out the disciples after. See, he had carried the cross with Jesus. He'd seen crucifixions before, but there's something different about this guy. Something different about the way that he suffered, the the prayers that he said for the people crucifying him, how he spoke to, to the Father. I think it's very likely 
that Simon then went and found the disciples and said, well, what is it about this Jesus? And then, hearing the stories of his resurrection, three days later, their family must have got to know the disciples. There was no other reason why Mark would include this here in the text of Scripture. The cross of Jesus, the very the sight of it, the experience of it, changed Simon. It had an effect on him. Look also at the soldiers. Now we know the soldiers, they mocked and beat and crucified Jesus, but the response of Jesus was also very surprising, was unique. He, he prayed for them. He said, Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And, and that was very true. The, the soldiers there, they were just doing what they always did. They crucified a lot of people. There, there was sort of a pattern of it. They didn't really know what they were doing to Jesus as the Son of God. I mean, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they had a sense of it. They knew, and the Roman officials even knew that there was something different about this, but the, the soldiers, they did not know. And Jesus, in grace, he, he prayed for them. He prayed that God would, would show them mercy. And we don't know what the impression was for all the soldiers, but we know at least one was impacted. In verse 47, after it was all said and done, Jesus had breathed his last. It says this in verse 47, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. That's not something that Roman centurions usually do. That's not a typical response to a cross. But here, this cross, Jesus' death, it evoked something different. It did something inside this man that it brought him to praise God and to recognize the innocence of Christ. This cross was different. And finally, the mourners, the women. What happened to them? Did they keep, did they keep weeping? Did they go home or did they follow Jesus? More than likely, they followed, whether they continued to weep or not. See, the crowd was there for a show. That's what the crucifixion was all about. They would have followed. They would have gone to the place, watched the people crucified. That's what everyone did. And we see a response of the crowd. We see an effect that the cross of Jesus had on the crowd, a crowd that had seen many, many crucifixions. Look at verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle... When they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. That, that's a phrasing there which means a sign of repentance, a sign of trouble at the very least. We see the same phrase in a parable that Jesus tells about two men that come to God in prayer, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee is very proud before God. And he looks up and he, he claims all the good things that he's done and appeals to those things in his relationship with the Father. But the tax collector, the tax collector looks low. Here's what he says in Luke 18. It says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. See, this, this mood of the crowd was not typical. They, they were feeling a conviction of something. Whether they came to saving faith or not, we won't know until we get to heaven. But what we see clearly is that the cross demands a response. That its purpose is to well up in us a sense of conviction, a sense of weight of our sin, and then a sense of need. We are to beat our, beat our breasts in the sense of, Lord, I need your help. Lord, I can't do it on my own. Lord, there's something, something going on. And, and at first, we may not even know what it is may simply be a stirring in our heart that there is something not right, a disquieted soul. And yet the cross of Jesus gives the answer. 
that there is a, a mounting weight of sin for each of us because of our disobedience, because of our selfishness, because of the wickedness of our heart, something that we see all around us every day and yet no one else has an answer to. But in the cross of Christ, we have the answer because it was a unique cross. It was a purposeful cross, a grace-filled cross. See, any other cross, it meant the end of life, meant the end of hope. The pain and the suffering and the tears were there because of all that was being lost, but the cross of Jesus was different. There was certainly pain and there were tears, but, but there's a moment where the weeping ends. There's a moment, and, and it happened with certainty three days later. The, the disciples of Christ, they wept. He was dead. He was put in a tomb, but, but Sunday was coming, and they, they couldn't, even though they were told, they didn't know. They didn't know until it happened. But, but for us, we know the end of the story. We know that the, the cross of Jesus was the beginning of the grace and the life that God brings because Jesus himself did not stay dead. See, the, the metaphor that Jesus gave of us as dry wood is apt, it's accurate. But that's not the end of the story. For we in faith, those who come to, to the pace of conviction and repentance, we, we are replanted, the dead wood in the ground, and we sprout forth life. We have new life given to us as a gift because of all that Christ has done. And, and that's the life of a, of a believer one that is continually repentant, continually aware of the weight of sin, but so thankful for what God has done that we no longer have to walk under it. Any burdens that we have, we give it freely, willingly, and Jesus takes it. In fact, he already has because he said on the cross that it is finished, that it's done. So for us this morning, we are gonna continue to, to reflect on, to respond to, to worship God for what he's done, to worship Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into a time of response. Lord God, thank you indeed for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that on it we, we see the depth of your love because we see the depth of suffering. We see the, the pain and the torture and the torment that was rightly ours. And yet you, Jesus, in power and strength, you took it upon yourself because you love us because it was the plan of your father to, to glorify himself, to, to reveal the, the grace of God, the justice of God in that sin will always be condemned and punished, but the grace of God in that for all who would believe, Jesus is the one who takes the punishment. Lord, I pray for all of us here. I pray, God, that we would, we would know afresh the grace of the cross, and that for those of us, Lord, who are not yet at that place of, of belief, Lord, I pray that today would be a day where there is good work done, good questions that come, good stirrings that happen because of the realities of the cross of Jesus. And God, we pray that this Easter weekend would be a weekend where many, many more people know the saving work that Christ did and the importance of it. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.